Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Hey everybody, it's Neelai. We've got another special episode of our Vergecast creator series coming up. What's up, Alex? A lot. We're, we're going to talk about controllers today. Controllers. So this is the third episode. Yes. You did keyboards. We did keyboards. You did trackballs. We did ploopy. You did ploopy. We talked about ploopy. Today's controllers. What do you mean about controllers? Well, I think the thing was, for this final episode, we really wanted to talk about a gadget where all the tinkerers, all the people making these things, actually, for once, had a really big win. And these bigger companies really finally started to pay attention. And that led us to controllers, because right now, most of them aren't really accessible unless you have, like, two hands with really solid dexterity. And a lot of people have spent a lot of time modding those to make them more accessible for other members of the gaming community. What specifically do you mean by uh, accessible? Well, I think that means like controllers that you can use with one hand or a foot or like putting all the joysticks on one side. There's even mods for people with different levels of motor control. And so that kind of led me to this one guy who's been doing this for 20 years, and that's Ben Heck. So uh, it's funny. I know Ben. Ben is from Wisconsin. He lives in Madison. Okay. In my ancient vlogging history, <laughs> we would always cover every Ben Heck mod. I've actually been out to Madison to see Ben before. That's amazing. Yeah. And he, he was he was a lot of fun to talk to about video game controllers. But, you know, this is also a success story. And so the other half of this is we really wanted to talk to one of these big companies. And we ended up talking with Bryce Johnson, who is one of the creators of Microsoft's adaptive controller for the Xbox. That adaptive controller is a big win. People love it. One of the things that I think about all the time is people love the adaptive controller, even if they do have two hands and dexterity, yeah. because it's just a it's a cool controller. It's great. And making things accessible makes them better for everybody. So I am very excited for this episode. Take it away, Alex. A lot of the times when I hear game control mods, I think of people cheating at Call of Duty by adding special triggers. With this modded controller and the rapid fire mods, it completely transforms this gun. Or I think of like that video of teen Timothy Chalamet painting an Xbox controller. Uh, here's Red Tiger. Started it today. Oh, uh, yesterday. Finished it today. It looks nice. It looks sexy. And yeah, some of the controller modding is focused on cheating the system or just being unique. But a lot of the people out there modding controllers are doing it for a much cooler reason. Increasing the accessibility of playing video games. My name is Akaki, and this is my one-handed DualSense controller. This video will review our PlayStation 4 right-handed controller for our accessible gaming division. As a hobby, I build and design custom game controllers for people with physical disabilities. Video games have a very well-documented accessibility problem. But that's starting to change. And it's not because execs at gaming companies have suddenly changed their minds. It's because of the community being vocal and demanding changes. And when that fails, implementing their own. That's what led me to Ben Heck. Hello, I'm Benjamin J. Heckendorn. Online, I go by Ben Heck. I have a website, benheck.com. I am a self-taught electrical engineer, and I've been doing video game-related modding and customized consoles, controllers, etc. since the year 2000. 
He was one of the first modders to really embrace building communities online, back before social media was even a term in most of our vernacular. I knew if I was going to talk to anyone about how this area has transformed and what it takes to do it, it had to be Ben. So here's my conversation with Ben. What was your first controller that you modded? Well, I started out modifying old game systems. Okay. The Atari 2600 from back in the 70s or like 1980. I found one of those in like a junk drawer and I was like, I think I could make this portable. This was back in 2000. And so I hacked it all up and I I made it into like a somewhat compact unit. A grand total of 57 wires, nine switches, three potentiometers, three resistors, two capacitors, and one voltage regulator have to be hand connected to build a VCSP. I had a GeoCities website. I put it on there and then a gaming, I think it was classicgaming.com, put a link to it. And then apparently I became sort of internet famous back then. I mean, that was before YouTube, social media even. Yeah, that was 22 years ago. So you've been doing it ever since. What I was really excited to talk to you about is I think in my head, I usually think of controller mods as like somebody painting a controller or maybe putting little switches on the back so they can shoot faster in Call of Duty. But you're actually doing stuff to make controllers more accessible for people. Correct. So I became known as like, oh, this guy's modifying things or like, oh, he made a portable Xbox 360 into a laptop or whatever. So it's 2006. Mm-hmm. This guy emails me and he's like, hey, I was in the second Iraq war. And when he was over there, you know, he'd been wounded and he came back. He's like, I realize if I don't have both my hands, I can't hold a controller because it requires both your hands. He's like, and I want to play video games. Like this was a big part of my life. So he's like, could you make me a controller? And but he's like, can you move everything that'd be on one side of the controller and make it so it's accessible just on one side? And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try that. So as you can see, we have the uh, left analog on the leg here. So what you do is you move your arm left and right to do that motion. And then the right analog stick is the same as it ever was. The original prototypes that I did, I think this, this was the Xbox 360 days. Yeah. Well, I think they were actually over-engineered because I was like laser cutting panels and little... <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay, this works. And I can't remember if that was, that was the first time I did it, but you know, there's two analog sticks, right? Right. And obviously that's a problem. So one of the gags I came up with was you take the right-hand analog stick and you put it on the bottom of the controller... And then you actuate it against your leg. Oh, that's cool. This acts as a joystick. And then moving the controller against your leg acts as the other analog axis of movement. And so that was something I did pretty early on because I was like, you know, how do you get both analogs? To-? Now, it is harder for people to, to learn because you're taking this many tasks and putting them all into one hand, which does make it more difficult. But the vast majority of people that I sell them to, that seems to work. I get a lot of feedback. It's like, hey, now I can game again. So that's kind of that's where it started back in 2006. You expanded it. You, you primarily for a long time there were mainly doing Xbox 360 controllers, right? You weren't working on PlayStation or Nintendo controllers. Yes. So if you think about in 2006, if you take apart your standard computer keyboard, not like a, a Razer, but your standard one, it's got those that silk screen conductive membrane. Yeah. It's basically two pieces of plastic. And then that's mm-hmm. how the switches work. That's what Sony uses. They've been using that for their controllers for the buttons since 1995. 
And it makes it really hard to modify. Like you can't just go in there and like, oh, I'm going to solder to this point and that gives me the X button. I'm going to solder to this point that gets me the square button. You can't do it very easily on a Sony controller. Whereas in the Xbox, you take it up. It's just a bog standard green circuit board and it's filled with test points all over. It's like test point, <laughs> test point. And you solder to those and boom, you get your button. Oh, that's cool. So that's why for the longest time I only did Xbox was because it was much, much easier to modify the controllers versus PlayStation. Also, if you want to get into the weeds with it. Always. <laughs> Sony revises their controllers multiple times per generation, whereas Microsoft might do it once. Yeah. So not only is the PlayStation controller harder to modify, but it keeps changing as well. Uh, I think there was at least three different versions for the PlayStation 4, for instance, whereas Xbox had two over that same period. It was like Microsoft conscious of like what you were doing oh yeah actually microsoft actually uh every so often they'll send me a whole box of like broken controllers just to scavenge parts from oh that's cool so how did that go from like one guy and, and helping one guy to a little side hustle is it fair to call it a side hustle is it a full hustle no it is not the main thing that i do but actually well, i just i just well, actually i gotta send them off today like I just did my taxes like 2021. I built like 124 of them, it turns out. So I, I built about two a week for people. But I, one thing that helped is we had a, we had this forum on my website. We, mm -hmm. It was the benheck.com forum. And people would go on there like, oh, I want to modify video game consoles. I want to you know do this. And that was from like 2004 to 2007 was probably the heyday of that. Yeah. So my website, benheck.com, already had a lot of good SEO as far as like modifying things go. Because that's why even though my forums are dead, we they've been dead for a long time, I still keep them up and I keep the database in good nick. The SEO is too good. Right, because there's still tons of legacy links from Google that still go to that website. So I wanted to make sure it's still there. So it was just, it was just web traffic back then. And I guess it still is. I don't do any more marketing people just come to my website and order this stuff so youtube twitter like when when, when you started using these because you're a fairly big presence on both that didn't kind of transform how people were were reaching out to you and, and kind of talking to you about accessibility and controllers not that i've noticed i, I well a lot of people email me about it that's pretty mm -hmm. common so I, maybe they just go to my website because, you know, they'll email me and they'll be like, oh, you know, I've got this particular thing. Or I have also done other modified controllers in the past. Like I've done one for someone who had muscular dystrophy, which meant they basically had trouble having the strength to necessarily use the controller. Yeah. Another thing I've come across is um, the size of people's hands. I couldn't use the original one. I had two. My, I have very tiny hands. And you're not alone. Like uh, there's there's someone right now uh, who I'm trading emails with. And their, they, their main problem is they are having trouble reaching the whole thing because, yes, people have different size hands. There's a lot of different things that can affect, you know, your ability to game. Myself, I have, I'm like 50% colorblind. So when they started adding those options into games about 10 years ago, I think like Dice actually was one of the first ones to do it with Bad Company 2. I'm like, oh yes, finally, I can see the the my ally markers in the snow maps because otherwise yeah. I couldn't <laughs> see the blue, right? I'm like, okay, this is something I can appreciate. And there's other things, a lot of other, much, well, almost everything is worse than that, that can affect people. So it's kind of interesting to do that kind of stuff. Like, okay, what can I do? Even if it's just these controllers, which are, it's not like it's some sort of science miracle, but it's kind of fun to, you know, do problem solving with that. And right now what I'm doing is actually I was working on it just this morning. I'm working on ways to uh, improve the process mm -hmm. so I can keep the prices static as other prices might change. Like during the 
like in 2020, mm-hmm. I had a hard time like finding the controllers. So I was having to go on eBay actually to get a lot of them or go to the used game store once things reopened. And yeah, yeah that was kind of a crapshoot back then. And even like the filament at that time, like the 3D <laughs> printer filament. Uh-huh. So when people send me controllers for repair, which, you know, obviously they break after time. And the number one thing that goes wrong is stick drift. Oh, nope. don't tell the don't tell big game industries. <laughs> I had this spool of filament. It's like this marble, fake marble filament. I got at a festival in 2019, and I'm like, oh, I wait a minute. I'm never going to use this. I'm not going to print chess pieces or anything, right? Yeah. But then Amazon was like, oh, uh, we don't have any white filament, and I'm like, I guess I have to use this white marble. <laughs> so now when I get if someone sends me in a controller and I see something that should have been a white 3D printed piece, but it's actually like this marble which kind of looks like you know the white gum that has like the specks of flavor in it yeah it kind of looks like that so if i see something on there with that color of filament i'm like oh i made that the summer of 2020 <laughs> it, it's it's like an archaeologist i can like rip, it, it kind of reminds me i feel like it's a little bit of an artist's signature people you can just see that and be like i did that i know and other people will now know i love it well in the case of that filament it was the signature of shortages or whatever <laughs> the problem was back then you, you mentioned earlier that Microsoft was was always very enthusiastic about you modifying these controllers and making them more accessible. Microsoft now is kind of embraced accessibility itself and has it started, you know, it has this big, cool accessibility controller. Yep. With the Xbox Adaptive Controller, a gamer can game with one hand and one foot, or one hand and their shoulder, or even one foot and their chin. And I can change it from game to game. Was there ever like evidence where they were like, oh, yeah, we're working on this because we see so much of the appetite there because of people like you? Well, they've never told me that directly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know they knew of my work. I don't know if it inspired them. And I actually did buy one of their controllers to take a look at. And at the time they announced that, I'm like, oh, I guess we're not going to build these anymore. But <laughs> an issue that people have with that, like people will email me and they're just like, hey, I tried it, but... It's this big box, and it has all these like one eighth inch three millimeter headphone jacks. Uh-huh. So you're like, okay, I've got this foot pedal. Plug it in. That's going to be the jump button. I've got this uh, puff controller where you use air. I'm going to plug it into here. So basically, in order to use this thing, you have to plug all the stuff into it. It looks like a giant like super squid with all yeah. these wires coming out of it. So the feedback I've gotten from people is that. Yeah, I think this thing is like 99 bucks, which is actually a lot less than I charge for my modifications. Mm-hmm. But they're like, yeah, but you can't just use this thing out of the box. It's got like two big buttons on the front and everything else has to be plugged back in. So at least for people with a specific situation of like, I only have one hand, people buy that controller and then they don't realize how much extra work you have to put into it or how many add-ons. Microsoft also has this thing on their Xbox consoles. I think it's called Assist or Microsoft Assist. So if you have like, you know, your partner or your brother or sister or whatever, like, let's say, okay, I'm playing this game, but I have some sort of impairment. There's a certain thing I I have difficulty doing, like this button and this button. Microsoft actually has it where you can map certain functions of one controller onto an assistant controller. So someone else can help you perform those functions as well. And that's baked into the, the operating system of the Xbox. Which is pretty cool. That's very cool. I think that's what, one of the things they thought with the, you know, the Microsoft Accessibility Controller, whatever it's called, is that, oh, you know, this can let a person do certain things, but then someone else can do the rest of it. So they, they made it very general purpose, but mm-hmm. that's also a negative because you have to add everything else to it. So, yeah, I mean, I thought, oh, I guess, uh, I guess we're not going to sell any more of these mods anymore. And this was like three or four years ago. And I guess not. Like, Last couple of years, I think I've sold more per year than I did in the past, even. Wow. 
I guess my, my, my last big question for you is, how have you seen these big gaming companies? We, we talked about Microsoft, but, but Sony, Nintendo, even some of these other ones like Steam and stuff. Have they started to embrace accessibility? Have you started to see them change in this last 22 years that you've been doing this? Well, I would say a lot more changes happened in the last 10 years, even, you know, you have like able gamers, they've been pushing for this for much longer than 10 years, but it does seem like the industry is starting to, well, not starting to, they have been implementing it more and more. I mean, I'm surprised Sony hasn't done more with it. I mean, they sell way more consoles Mm -hmm. and like, I'm not the only one who modifies controllers. You've got like evil controllers and there's a couple other ones, you know, if you have like, oh, like, let's say you're Sony, Hey, Sony. Maybe make it so your controller is a little easier to mod. A person of average soldering skill who hasn't been doing it for like 35 years would probably struggle with it. Anyway, what I would want to say with that is since people are modifying controllers, maybe, hey, there's things they could do to make it easier. Yes, there's going to be people trying to cheat or quick scope or whatever in Call of Duty. There's also people that want to modify controllers for altruistic purposes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, without affecting anything, they could make things a little easier to modify or or fix. So yeah, I guess that would be my that would be my plea. And as I mentioned, except for like the micro soldering part, Xbox, it's actually gotten easier with the controllers. I don't think it was on purpose, but it's been easier. Whereas Sony is they've actually made the controller the same way longer than Xbox. It's like, oh, here's a silk screen circuit, and that's got the four face buttons, the four uh, shoulder buttons, and the cross. They keep making it the same way over and over and over, and it's very hard to mod because I can't solder to a piece of plastic, the silk screen circuit. So you've got to find the traces on the PCB. Oh, the PCB has no test points. Oh, and the silk screen is black or blue, which makes it even harder. I'm just still continuously impressed. You've been doing this for over 22 years and you started putting it on your website to kind of creating this industry, to getting people like even Microsoft noticing your work and hopefully thinking about it. But thank you so much for for taking the time to chat today, Ben. Yeah, no problem. Okay, I bet you didn't expect we'd be talking about PCBs in an Xbox controller that long. Ben's got a wealth of knowledge about the game controller space and about the unique challenges of building controllers for a wide variety of people with different capabilities. After the break, I'm going to talk to somebody else who knows this space, particularly the Xbox accessibility space. Bryce Johnson. He's one of the creators of Microsoft's Adaptive Controller, which was maybe the first controller from a major console maker intended to actually address accessibility for a wide variety of people. Stay tuned. Support of The Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vergecast. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash vergecast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vergecast. 
And we're back. We've talked to a lot of gadget makers for this video series about their efforts to make cool stuff that maybe, just maybe, the big guys in gadgets will pay attention to. Ben and other game controller modders have actually succeeded. Maybe it's because they've been doing it longer. I'm not sure. But regardless, in 2018, Microsoft introduced the adaptive controller and finally gave first party choice for people looking to make an accessible controller for playing video games. No waiting for a modder, no concerns about voided warranties, just an easy financial transaction. And that's because of Bryce Johnson and his colleagues at Microsoft. They created the adaptive controller. I've been at Microsoft a while, working on accessibility probably most of my time here throughout Xbox and, and now hardware. So let's talk to him about it. You know, I think it's kind of interesting that you guys did this and then Microsoft released it and really put a lot of marketing and, and other things behind it, a lot of mm -hmm. resources behind it. Because kind of prior to that, as far as like accessibility and gaming, it was primarily up to people online, like just hacking together things. Would you say that's kind of correct? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's not like we didn't know or notice. We learned a lot from a lot of people and, and we had wonderful partners throughout the journey. I think as you get into any type of accessibility inclusion, you know, we talk a lot about it being intentional and, and we kind of dig into the weeds there with the community. So that that is super important to us. But to do that, you have to be part of the community. So yeah, we were there. We were there when we saw it, but we, we saw folks doing things and we, we, we learned. <laughs> Was it primarily like in forums? Was it on YouTube? Was like where where were you finding a lot of that community working on these things and thinking about it? Because I think most of the community did a very different kind of approach to accessibility controllers versus what you guys did, which I want to get into. Yeah, absolutely, and and I would say that like definitely in the beginning there was a lot of YouTube. You know, I'm thinking like um, my buddy AJ Ryan, who goes by Only Use Me Feet. There's so many people, to be honest, you know, Nomad, all, all these folks. There's there's really just tons of them. I wish I could just sit here and say them all. Broly, of course, Broly. I can't believe I forgot Broly. I think a lot of the, the ones I'd seen had primarily been created for people who might have only one limb or something like that. But you, you really were working on something that was available for people with a wide variety of different needs. What kind of led you to trying to kind of do as much as you can for as many people as you can? Well, I think that's the answer in a way. It's like we wanted to do as much as we can for as many people as we can. And we had to investigate a lot of solutions that were out there and understand who they were optimized for. I think the one thing that is tricky, and I don't want to say that it's this is a golden rule or anything, but often when you optimize for one um, disability, you're excluding from another, right? You have to figure out the balance, right? And so for us, it was always this exercise in understanding the balance. And I will say that I think that, um, you know, we still have a lot to learn there mm -hmm. in that way. We still are learning to understand that balance. But we started, I think, we're in a place that you just described, right? We started with limb different vets. Mm -hmm. You know, we moved on to quadriplegia because that makes sense because that's where a lot of limb different vets are also quadriplegics. You know, we moved on to cerebral palsy. And then, you know, we moved on to muscular, neuromuscular conditions. So while I think we do really well for limb different folks and quadriplegics and, and even CP, you know, I, I definitely recognize that we could do better for neuromuscular folks. And that's, you know, what we're always thinking about. 
Yeah, I think it's it's a real challenge because you do have just you can't build just. I mean, I think you guys are kind of coming close to that, but it, but you can't build just one thing for for everybody. Yeah, I mean, like one of the big black buttons on the front of the controller, you know, you can press it in any spot. The engineering team made it so it didn't wobble and it was fairly lightly pressed, but not too lightly pressed. Like the the trick we did have these in the beginning, we had these a little bit lighter to press, but the problem was is if you moved it, it would press the button. So because it was so lightly finely tuned. But the other thing about it, and I'm gonna this might, you know, sorry to the audio guy in advance, like you can hit these things, right? Yeah. Like they're meant to be hit for people who have like they don't have the the motor control um, and they have what they would call high tone so they can kind of hit it. So that's just two different extreme uses, like the ability of people who press too light and the ability of people who press too hard. There's many spectrums like that that we think about as we work on our products. And I, I will come back to we try to find the balance, but it, it is always in the service of like human diversity, right? What I thought was really interesting about the community and what I've really seen from the community is, is for the most part, it's, it's, it's a lot of mods and stuff. And I know a lot of people in the community specifically appreciate Microsoft because you leave a lot of like the pins on the board available mm-hmm. so people can really get in there and mess around. Why did you go instead of kind of doing just the most Xbox modded mod Xbox 360 controller instead of doing that you created this this almost joystick looking device what what kind of led you from that very traditional iconic look to this new one yeah, that's a really good question let me kind of give you a bit of a broader um, story around it. We knew that we needed to externalize controls. So on the back of the controller, there's 19 ports that basically have a switch input for every function on a game controller, plus two extras. Um, Actually, sorry, generation nine controllers, there'll now only be one extra. So if you want to have that share button, you can. So there's still a lot of options there. And so trying to figure out how to externalize all those controls was was really tricky. And what allowed us to design a form that was so different from a regular controller was Copilot. So we were working in a different direction. The original hacks were in a different direction. And Copilot, when we designed that as a feature and we got that into like production, allowed us to like use different forms because you can always use a traditional controller alongside um, your adaptive controller. You can use them at the same time. Can you explain Copilot? Yeah, Copilot is the ability to take two controllers, so it could be an adaptive controller or a regular traditional controller, and tell the Xbox or Windows 10 PC that they're the same controller, that you really only have one controller. And for the adaptive controller, what this allowed us to do is it allows us to have this form Because if you could use half the buttons on a regular controller, let's say you were a limb different, you could use the right half of a controller. We want you to use the right half of a controller. We don't want you to go out and buy stuff. We want you to use what like you have. So the other thing too for Copilot is some people don't even need the adaptive controller. They could get what they need from two controllers. And we continue to look at that as we develop the ecosystem. You know, the design for Xbox Hori products that they put out, you can Copilot their arcade stick with a controller. So in, in a sense, that's super powerful. If you've looked into these hacks, you've seen people, it is about modularizing control. You know, we always ask people to tell us where you have movement so that we can put buttons there, we can put joysticks there. Um, I think a lot of times in the disability community, especially in the limited mobility community, we talk in terms of what people are missing, but we don't focus on that. We focus on what people have. 
Where do you think the community is going to go next? Like, what are the next big goals in making gaming more accessible? In terms of gaming, I think there's been a lot of people who've been talking about this for a really long time, and that history should be honored. I look at what gaming's doing, and I, I see them basically rocketing through accessibility. You know, if you think about the, the internet, like the web was designed to be accessible from the beginning, and we're still talking about it like 30 years later, like making web accessibility. Yeah. We always have to be kind of sort of vigilant to make sure that we're intentionally including people, we're bringing people into the community. So where, where are we going next? I think there's tons of stuff in game accessibility that's going on. Like, to be honest, after the adaptive controller, I did a lot of game stuff. I then kind of sunk more into hardware stuff. And I, I've still kept basically in the gaming world. I actually, I'm on a group chat with like the folks from GA Conf and can I play that? And so I'm still connected to that world. Um, so it's it's really interesting to see how quickly that's developing, especially if you know the history of of computing accessibility in general. Like human computer interaction in gaming is is like human computer interaction on extra hard, right? Let's put a gaming metaphor in there, right? There's so many things that they're uncovering and addressing so quickly in gaming accessibility. It's really quite impressive. But there is still a, a huge way to go. I mean, even an inaccessible website is somewhat more accessible than a, an accessible game. There's really a lot of, of ways to go. And that's not to diminish any of the work that anyone's done. There's been some incredible work um, throughout the community. But, you know, that's just that aspect of it. Like, but I mean, as you think about like, well, what is gaming, right? I think, you know, one of the, the sad things, and this will, will date myself, is I know that uh, the Mixer team did a lot of really great work on how to think about like how people with disabilities stream. And when you think about like the fact that if you can't get a nine to five job because of a disability or, or condition that you have, you know, streaming can be a viable option to help supplement your income. You know, it's, it's so it's, as we think about empowering people with disabilities through gaming, there is, there's just so much stuff that we can do. Do you think that community of people creating these controllers, doing these pretty extensive mods and stuff to make these more accessible, is that going to go away as as companies like Microsoft and Hori kind of invest more in this community, or do you think they're going to continue? No, because I think we try to service those people, right? Like when we created the adaptive controller, we definitely had a, a sense of like supporting makers. Because as we talked about earlier, when you lean too much in one direction, you might be excluding someone else. So for example, people ask why we don't include joysticks with the adaptive controller, you know, and it's kind of like, well, what joystick? Like a joystick for like uh, someone with cerebral palsy who might use their feet or, or a tetraplegic that needs something bigger or like a tiny joystick for someone with like a neuromuscular condition. So you realize that as soon as you start including all these parts in here, parts that cost money, some people will use them and other people won't. So it is actually crucially important for us to support that maker community and to have those things out there. So in many ways, we've we've actually dug deeper into that. But at the same time, you know, we recognize that people want to go buy a product that they can kind of go to a store and buy and, and sort of use without having to, like, go in their garage and build something first, yeah. <laughs> you know. So we're trying to figure out all these things, right? Like, how do you create products that can be extended by the maker community, but can be purchased to the store and basically taken home and used? So what is next for Microsoft in this area? So on, on May 10th, we announced the Microsoft Adaptive Accessories. It's a suite of products, which basically includes an adaptive mouse that can be extended by 3D printing tails and things like that, that change this mouse in many different forms. There is the Microsoft Adaptive Hub, 
which is very similar to what the Xbox Adaptive Controller is. And then there's the, the Microsoft um, Adaptive Button. So this is very similar to our D-pad. This comes in a number of different ways. All the functions of these devices can be programmed, not only with like to whatever button presses you want, but to macros and things like that to help you kind of increase your productivity. So the top of this button can be 3D printed and designed to be extended by the maker community. And to kind of bridge that gap between makers and consumers, we've partnered with Shapeways so that people can basically go to Shapeways, pick the mods that they want, and just have Shapeways print them and then send them to them. So you don't even have to have a 3D printer to basically go in and get and, and take advantage of the community of people that will build mods for this thing. So we have like joysticks for this button. We have cheek sticks for this button. We have all kinds of things, um, you know, more kind of vertical things. Typically, a lot of quadriplegics want a bigger joystick to even press buttons, you know, because this kind of movement helps. So we've created this system so that people on their PCs, um, and it also works on, on, on mobile phones too, can basically create what we did with the adaptive controller. Like that's, a, I think, one of the things that we've learned in our inclusive design practice that is something that I think we need to dig in more to is that, you know, very often in accessibility, we talk about what's wrong, but we really need to also focus on what's right. You know, like with the adaptive controller, I couldn't really articulate this until about until the middle of the pandemic. You know, we created the adaptive controller for veterans with limited mobility, but we were inspired to do so to support their mental health because they loved gaming. Right. We were there to support what they loved. So I think a lot of what we talk about in inclusive design and accessibility can sometimes be about the bad things, but we need to hold on and cling to the good things. We need to hold on to why they're there. I want to thank Bryce and Ben both for coming on the show. A lot of the times you can get, I don't know, a little despondent about what major tech companies are doing versus the little guy. Too often it feels like they buy up the cool stuff only to kill it. Or they sell their own products for so cheap, the cool stuff can't survive. But here's an instance where both are happy to coexist and actually create really important technology that makes playing video games a lot more accessible for a lot more people. It gives you hope for people like Colin and Phil Lamb, who created Ploopy to make open source gadgets a real viable thing. Or Jacob Alexander, who just wants you to use a better keyboard than the one IT issues you. Great sea changes in the gadget world can happen. The adaptive controller feels like proof of that. You just need to find a gadget you love and find a community that loves it as much as you do. If you have thoughts about this episode, you can hit me up at Alex H. Kranz on Twitter, or you can email us at vergecast at theverge.com. Our regular Vergecast chat show will be back on Friday. This episode of The Vergecast is produced by me, Alex Kranz, lead producer Liam James, and senior audio director, Andrew Marino. Okay, stay classy. <laughs>